0: Today is our final look at Genesis. We're going to go for a little more than three chapters. We're going to go <laughs> the end of 47, then all of 48, 49, 50. It's going to be long, right? So uh, <laughs> just to, to shortcut some of the stuff, we're, we're in the, the sub-story of this guy named Joseph. Joseph has saved his family, which is the family of Israel, his dad. He has saved his family and the nations of the world from a global famine, by the power of God, God warned him. He warned Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and so Pharaoh promoted him to be vice regent over the the empire. And uh, he stored up food during seven years of abundance to prepare for seven years of famine. And in doing so, he saved the nations. He uh, he propelled Egypt into uh, into a greater world power, and of course, his own family. Uh, with his father, Jacob, whose name is also Israel. Uh, His own family was able to survive because of that. He was able to save their lives. So we're going to finish their story today. Uh, And this story, of course, is just part of the greater story of the book of Genesis, which was written to tell us not just about the creation of the world, not just about the origin of sin. All of that was really just set up, little milestones, to get us to understand how God began a people for himself. The author is Moses, and he has just freed the Israelites from slavery to Egypt, and he's walking them out. They've been slaves for 400 years and he's walking them out of Egypt having uh, ransacked the, the country and they're, they're moving to the promised land and on the way they stop at Mount Sinai, God speaks to him, he writes this stuff down and, uh, and in doing that, the, the question that he's answering for the people of Israel is where did we come from? We are a people of, uh, that, that have been set apart and that we have a special heritage and a special destiny, where did we come from? And that is the question he's answering. What, uh, what was the beginning like? How did it come about? What is the beginning of God's people? And that is the, the the nature of the book. That's the objective of the book, to get us to understand that. We come to this final section here, and it's just going to be a whole lot of endings, much like it was last week. It's, it's, you know It's a Lord of the Rings moment where you have a bunch of endings, and then when you think it's done, there's some more endings, right? We're gonna take it in seven parts. It's gonna go like this. uh, And the the headings to the parts, they kinda don't matter. It's just ending, 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 right? It's a bunch of endings. Number one is uh, Promoting Joseph. Number two is Promoting Joseph's Sons. Number three is Blessing Jacob's Sons. Number four is The End of Jacob. Number five is the two big lessons. Number six is the end of Joseph. And then number seven is just a a general conclusion to wrap the whole thing up. They are not of equal length, so you don't, I mean, if you've, sorry, I should have told you that before you wrote the headings down, if you spaced them out equally. You're going to suffer. Okay, point number one. Promoting Joseph is chapter 47, verses 29 to 31. This is what it says. When the time drew near that Jacob, or Israel, must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And Israel said, Swear to me. And Jacob swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. He's still alive, but he bowed himself on the head of his bed, or it might say the head head of his staff. Either or. We don't really know how to translate that. Hebrews 11.21 translates it staff. Uh, Jacob... Israel is approaching death. His only request is not to be buried in Egypt. And I really am interested in the tone that he takes with Joseph. He's like, if I if I found favor with you, then make a promise for me. And he has him do that, that 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 promise thing that they do the, the hand under the thigh. And he he says, um, swear to me that uh, that you'll bury me not here in Egypt. I don't belong in Egypt. I belong in the Promised Land. I belong with Abraham and Isaac that's where I belong. That's the land that God has promised to us, and that's where I want to remain. And so, Joseph uh, goes ahead and he he promises that. Now, why does Israel ask Joseph to do this? Israel has 12 sons. Reuben is the oldest. Then there's Simeon and Levi and Judah, etc. But Joseph Back in, in chapter 37, he had a dream that his brothers and his, his parents would bow to him, that he would have a place of preeminence. And here it is, where, uh, where his father is saying, if I found favor in you, do me this. Do me, swear this to me. Make a promise to me. Where, uh, where his father has now approached him with a submissive spirit, in a sense. He's saying, please, if you love me. And he recognizes something about Joseph, and he promotes him to the, the highest place in the family, the head of the household. See, taking care of the funeral rites and stuff for your, uh, for your parents was the job of the eldest son. That's, that's the one that would take care of all the, the, you know, the stuff after your, your parents died. And the fact that Jacob, or Israel, comes to, to Joseph and says, you do it. He's saying, "You are now the head of the household. You are now the head of this family. You have the birthright. Everything that's supposed to go to the eldest son, Reuben, Reuben has lost. He's disqualified himself. But you, you can have it, and I give it to you." So, 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 passing on the the, the leadership uh, has is a sign that. Joseph has moved over the place of Reuben among his brothers. Now, look what happens to Joseph's sons, where Jacob will now promote Joseph's sons. You'll see what happens. If you know the family tree, Jacob or Israel, his son is Joseph. Joseph has two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. That would make them the grandsons of Jacob, Israel. You see that, right? So it goes Jacob to Joseph to Manasseh, Ephraim, right? So that's grandpa and grandsons. That's how it's supposed to be. But Jacob is going to promote them in a second. So watch what happens in chapter 48, verse 1 through 22. We'll read the first seven verses for a sec. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty, El Shaddai, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And he blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now... Your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, To my sorrow, Rachel, my wife, died in the land of Canaan on the way when when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Stop there for a second. Jacob, or Israel, is frail, he's dying, uh, and you'll find out that his vision is starting to go out and stuff, or it, it has gone out. As you get older, everyone gets cataracts, it's just a matter of when. He, uh, he's lost his vision. He's frail. He's dying. And before he dies, he retells how God promised Abraham the land and the blessing. The blessing of descendants. The blessing of, uh, of being a blessing to the rest of the nations. He repeats God's words, which were said in chapter 35. He he almost quotes them verbatim of how God said, you know, I'm going to multiply you, make you fruitful, all that stuff. But there are slight differences that start to reveal the author's themes. In chapter 35, God commands Jacob. He says, be fruitful and multiply. So that's a command, Jacob, you must obey. Be fruitful and multiply. And now, here in verse 4, God says, I will make you fruitful. I will multiply you. So which is it? Is it that Jacob has to obey? Or is it that God will do it? And the answer is yes, both. Because that's how it is with God. God commands his people, they must obey. And God does it. It is a a mysterious aspect, a, a cryptic notion, to think that what we do is what God does and yet we are not God and we can sin against him we could do things that he wouldn't do and yet when he wants to act he acts through his people people make their choices they willfully choose with free agency and yet God is sovereign and despite the free choice of men he accomplishes his will Another small change compared to chapter 35 is the addition of the phrase, an everlasting possession, an everlasting possession, talking about the land. He's going to give you this land as an everlasting possession. And that idea comes from when God said it to Abraham in chapter 13, verse 15, and in chapter 17, verse eight, an everlasting possession is the possession that can't be taken away. He will give the land to the descendants of Abraham. It will never be taken away. It can never be taken away. It'll be given completely, and it will be given permanently. And that should clue you in, in this part of the promise, that it has not yet been fulfilled. Israel still does not own the promised land. 300 square miles of land that's talked about throughout this book, they still don't own it. They own around 10% of it, maybe. And even then, it's like shared ownership, Mount Moriah, where the holy Holy mountain where the temple is supposed to be, right next to Mount Zion, they're connected to each other. Right there, there's a mosque instead of the temple, the holy temple where God would dwell. They have not yet received what God has promised because that promise is not fulfilled through the, the, the course of history. That promise is fulfilled in Jesus, and Jesus will return, and he will establish his kingdom. That promise will not be fulfilled outside of Jesus. The land will be given to the people of Israel. It will be theirs and only theirs forever under the rulership of the true king, the promised savior, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head and defeat sin once and for all. That's Jesus when he returns. He's the one who will possess the land and protect the people of Israel in it. And by association, all the Gentiles who have placed faith in the Messiah get grafted in to that plan. Now, the point here that, uh, that Jacob's doing, that, that um, when Israel is, is promoting Joseph's sons, he's adopting them. He's saying, they're mine. Your two sons, my grandkids, now they're mine, just like my regular sons are mine. Just like Reuben and Simeon are mine, Manasseh and Ephraim, they're not my grandsons. They're my sons now. And he uses official language, ancient language of adoption. He says, they are mine. And he, he, he does it uh, in, in a ceremonial sense, the way that he speaks it. And the reason why he says that is to say that they will have inheritance from God, from, from, from his own passing away and from God, they will have inheritance equal to any of the other brothers. They too will be treated as the sons of Israel. They are not grandsons. They're not, they're not farther removed. They are promoted one generation up to now be among the sons of Israel. Technically, Manasseh and Ephraim uh, will be as Reuben and Simeon. And uh, the reason why Jacob says they'll be like Reuben and Simeon is because Reuben and Simeon were the two oldest. And he's saying Manasseh and Ephraim will be as the firstborns. As Reuben and Simeon. They'll be the firstborns. In fact... Uh, it's this idea that Joseph's family line now takes preeminence. It's in line with promoting Joseph and promoting Joseph's sons. It means that that line now takes the prominent position among the, the sons of Israel. Look at First Chronicles chapter 5, and it says, "...the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel." so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and the chief came from Judah, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So, Joseph gets the birthright, meaning the the place of preeminence, the the material inheritance and stuff that the eldest uh, son would get. There's no mention of blessing, just birthright. If you remember the story of Jacob, you know, he... He deceptively takes the blessing and the birthright. He takes them both, right? But here, it just says the birthright goes to Joseph, the the material inheritance. What about the blessing? What about God's God's favor, God's special maneuvering of his plan through that line? Does it go through Joseph? It doesn't seem like it. It says Judah is the strongest, is the strong among his brothers, And the chief comes from him. What does that mean? And we'll kind of figure that out in chapter 49. But for now, we're just left wondering what does that mean? Jacob also uh, mentions how his wife Rachel, uh, which is one of his wives. He had multiple wives. But Rachel died prematurely while Jacob was still wandering. And so Jacob is adopting their grandchildren, Manasseh and Ephraim. That was their grandchildren through Jacob and, and Rachel. He's adopting their grandchildren, almost to replace the children that he, the, that he would have continued to have with her. You know, he lost her prematurely, and so he says, I, I bring these people up, and these are now also sons of, of, uh, of my wife, Rachel, who passed away. It's all connecting back, and he's saying she's buried in the land, and these, these kids will also get an inheritance in the land, and it keeps connecting everything back to the promised land. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And it's not that he's confused. It's, that's a way to, to start the ceremony. It's kind of like, you know, at a wedding, uh, a father of the bride walks the, the bride down, and then the officiant says, who gives this woman away? It's not that the, the officiant is blind and stupid. You know, who gives this woman away? And then the father says, I do. And it, it ceremonially begins uh, the, the whole solemn service. So... When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here in Egypt. And Israel said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph... I never expected to see your face. I thought you were dead. I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed the kids from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, And brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father. Since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great nevertheless his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Okay, stop there for a sec. I love the way that that Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. I love the way Israel blesses Joseph's sons. He blesses the younger one with greater blessing. Now, both of them, Manasseh and Ephraim, both of them are going to have numerous descendants. Each uh, will become so great that at times Manasseh will become a synonym for the whole nation of of Israel. And Ephraim, as a synonym, will become a, uh, you know, for the whole nation of Israel. They'll both become synonymous with the nation of Israel because they become so so big and prosperous and all that stuff but almost stylistically Israel blesses the younger in this countercultural move to say that the way that the world blesses is not the way God blesses the manner in which the world finds honor and bestows honor is not the way that God does it And Joseph was not even prepared for that. He's like, what are you doing? You're, You're blessing the younger one. Put your right hand on the older one. And Jacob says, no, no, I know what's happening. I'm doing this on purpose. I know, my son, I know. If you remember, Jacob himself, Israel, Jacob himself, he was one of two twins. Esau was the older twin. Jacob was the younger twin. And yet he got the birthright and the blessing. He deceived to get it. He would have gotten it anyway because God had said he was going to get it. But he maneuvered deceptively to get it and he paid for it for basically his whole life. But he knows God intended for that blessing to go in such a way that the world would scratch its head and say, that's not how it goes. And he says, that's, that's how it is. The basis by which God blesses will not be the way the world blesses. The blessing of God will not be earned or achieved. It will be solely bestowed by grace, undeserved, unmerited, unqualified. Now, who cares? Why should we care who's greater or lesser? They're all believers. They're all God's people. You know, what's what's the point? And the point is that the original audience, which is the people of Israel walking out of uh, of slavery after 400 years, uh, their whole lesson for them is to understand that when God blesses, it's not going to be the way the world blesses. They have to know that. They have to soak that in because Moses is now leading them to a place to then teach them about God and, and show them what God is telling them. And they have to know that God works differently than the world. God's people have to constantly be reminded that we are not the same as the world. We are set apart. We live in faith, in trust. We don't just try to earn and achieve our way to greatness. That's what the world does. We want to be excellent for the Lord because we love the Lord. But that's not where our blessing comes from. If you were to pay attention to verses 15 and 16, there are three ways in which Israel refers to God, and these three ways strike me as as ways that maybe we ought to understand God. Way number one is, he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, The God before whom Abraham and Isaac walked. Now, this not only connects Jacob to worshiping the same God as Abraham and Isaac, but it connects him to the earlier names in Genesis too. It's interesting that he uses that verb. The the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Before Abraham, the people who worshiped God rightly were described as those who walked with him. God used to walk in the garden with Adam. And that came to a crashing end after, after, sin came into the, into the, after mankind fell into sin, committed sin, and were banished from the garden. But until that, God would walk in the cool of the garden. Enoch in, in uh, chapter 5, Enoch walked with God. Noah in chapter 6 walked with God. Great people of faith, they walked with God. And it's connecting you back to those people, that, that, that peculiar verb, which maybe we're very used to as Christians. We go, How was your walk with the Lord? We take that for granted, but that, that language was peculiar. These people walked with God. And he says, This is the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked it's their god they trusted him they obeyed him they lived with him even later moses will tell the people of israel love god and walk in his way walk in his way that becomes the language of faith a second way that that Israel refers to God. He says, the God who has been my shepherd all my life. The God who has been my shepherd all my life. This is a more personal regard. It's not just the God of my fathers. This is this is the God who has been my shepherd. God isn't just God of my fathers. He is El Elohe Israel. He is God, God of Israel. He is God of God of me. He is my God. He's been my shepherd. He's guided me. He's protected me. He's provided for me. He has cared about me. He is my shepherd. A third way that he refers to to God, he says, the angel who redeemed me from all evil, or the angel who redeemed me from all harm, from all bad, from all ra. Here's a specific application to how God is his personal God. This is not just God as a shepherd, meaning protector and provider. It's not just that. This is God the redeemer, God the rescuer, God the savior. He's the God that gave him dreams at Bethel to let him know not to be afraid because he says, I will be with you, chapter 28. He's the God that increased Jacob's flocks in Padanaram. Aram, no matter how many times Laban cheated him, because he says, I'm with you, chapter 30. He's the angel of Yahweh that Jacob wrestled all night at Peniel just to get a blessing, because he says, I won't leave and I won't stop until you bless me, chapter 31. He's the God that blessed Esau so that Esau would not be bitter against Jacob for stealing his birthright and blessing. He increased Esau's holdings and, and his land and his, his power so that when they met again, Esau was overjoyed to see his brother instead of filled with murderous rage like he was. He's the God that sovereignly orchestrated even the sinful decisions of Joseph's brothers so that Joseph saved Israel during famine. God is the God of the people before me, God is my God and God is my Savior, the three ways maybe we should understand God. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now stop there. Jacob says he took, took land from the Amorites with his sword and bow. That's weird because uh, when did he use a sword and a bow? If you remember Esau, his brother, like that was the hunter warrior guy. Uh, Jacob was, uh, Israel was more of like a softy. He hung around the tents shepherded, farmed, did that kind of stuff. He's very civilized, educated. He liked to stay still, not, not get too physical. When did he ever go to war and kill people? At what point does that show up in the story? It never does. It never does. Because technically, he never did. But two of his sons did in his name. Do you remember? Simeon and Levi. They killed all the men of Shechem because they didn't like the way that he treated their sister, Dina. They killed all the men of Shechem. They genocided that whole area. That's Jacob's land now. They did it in their father's name. And he says, I I give that land to you, a mountain slope, a Shechem. That's the word. I give you the Shechem. The violent brothers who... Who killed all the men of that land, they don't get to keep that land. They don't get to inherit that. When they killed it and took it over, it belongs to me. I give it to you. I don't give it to them. I give it to you because their violence will come back on them. It is not for them. So he reserves the land for Joseph. He gives the Shechem, the land of Shechem, the mountain slope, to Joseph because he says, Joseph, you don't belong in Egypt either. And when you get back, you need land. So I give you Shechem. Israel says that God will be with you and God will bring you out of Egypt. So this land is important. It will be yours. It is yours. And you need to know that because you will not stay in Egypt forever. You'll return to the promised land. We move then into chapter 49 where Jacob, Israel, blesses his sons. He blesses his sons. Uh, Chapter 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. That I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Now, before we get into the actual blessings, Jacob is gonna bless his sons and this advances the book's theme. This is important for the author. He's he's trying to, to forefront this idea. He's using Abraham's descendants to restore the blessing that Adam lost. See, Adam, the first man, Adam and Eve, they were blessed, be fruitful and multiply. That's what they were supposed to do. Fill the earth with God's glory, with the image of God's glory, with the image of God. That's what they were supposed to do, but they screwed it up. They disobeyed. They fell into sin. They did not trust. And so they forfeited the blessing to multiply and be fruitful. Sure, they multiplied, and yeah, they survived and stuff, and they did fine, but that's not the fruitfulness God's talking about. Multiply the glory of God. Be fruitful in the glory of God. They could do neither of those. They could multiply in the flesh, be fruitful in materialism, but they could not propagate the blessing. They forfeited the blessing. And so here's Jacob, and he says, I will bless you, and I will bless you. And if, if, if you were to jump down to verse 28, which we'll get to in a sec, uh, he says he, it says he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. He Blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And it just keeps throwing this word at you. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Blessed, blessed, blessed. The world fell into sin and wickedness. God, God started over. He says, okay, forget it. Everyone has gone astray. Each has gone his own way. Everybody has chosen a different path. Everyone decides for him or herself what's good or what's bad. What's right or what's wrong. What's holy and what's sinful. Everyone's doing that. I'm going to start over with a brand new people. And I'm going to start with this guy, Abram. I'm going to take Abraham and I'm going to make him into something great. I'm going to turn him into a nation of people who are set apart from all the nations of the world. And they will live in faith, in trust in me. They will not live according to the the, the mechanics of the world. They won't live according to the philosophy of the world, the ideologies of the world, the morals of the world. They won't. What they do will seem so backward. The world will hate them for it because they'll have such a a contrary sense of right and wrong. And yet, I'll call out a people for myself, a people who live by faith. And Jacob says, this is the blessing then. I give you the blessing. And he's reconnecting it to this idea of blessing that a brand new beginning is happening, one that should have been in Adam and Eve, but instead restarts with Abraham. Now, whenever the Old Testament says, in the days to come, days to come, and when you see that, uh, that phrase, that shows up in Numbers 24, verse 7, and in Deuteronomy 33, verse 5, it's always a talk about the future in the days to come, and then it's always connected to a king that will come and save Israel. And so you can expect in the blessings that he's about to pronounce that there will be a proclamation of a coming king who will save Israel in the days to come. That king, I mean, the next stop, really, is King David, the guy from the story David and Goliath, King David. And then, from that line, you'll get Jesus, King Jesus, the true king, the king of kings. That's where the real blessing is. That's where it's ultimately going to point us. Now, this is 1,500 years before Jesus is born where Israel is saying all this stuff. He doesn't even know what the plan is, but God is giving him the words to say it. And so he starts pronouncing blessings, starting in verse 3. He blesses each of his sons. He says, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Who does that? Verse 7: Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. What an interesting thing to say about Simeon and Levi. I will divide them and scatter them, meaning their descendants be divided and scattered so we've dealt with these three sons before reuben simeon levi right reuben usurped his father's uh his father's wife his father's bed his father's concubine all of that stuff it's a a a move of power not just lust but of power where he took something that was his dad's as if it were his he was i mean the oldest son is supposed to inherit that stuff later including concubines and things from his father but instead he took it while his dad was still alive and that was a move of power unstable as water this guy is He can't wait. He's impatient, and he's he's out of control. And so he loses his preeminence. Simeon and Levi were violent. They're the ones that murdered all the Shechemite men. And so so Jacob says, you'll be scattered. And that's why the birthright goes to Joseph. It doesn't go to any of these guys. Are these guys blessed? Because if you you read these, and Jacob says, let me bless you. Your anger sucks. You're going to be scattered. Bless you. It's a weird way to bless someone. Are they blessed by God? Yes, they are. Are they held accountable for their sins? Yes, they are. We have this mindset sometimes as God's people that, oh, I'm going to heaven. I'll be fine. And we think because of that, like our sin doesn't matter. And yet somewhere in there, and I don't know how it works in the economy of God, but somewhere in there, our sins are still something that we, we bear consequences for. It doesn't mean you get punished in heaven. That's not true. Your punishment is paid by Jesus once and for all. But there are consequences to sin. And I think that the, the easiest one to, to talk about, which is the most elusive one to understand, is simply joy in God. When there's sin in your life... You lose your intimacy with God, and maybe that doesn't matter to you if you've been in sin so long, you're so steeped in it that you don't even know what joy in God feels like. But there are consequences. There are aspects of greater blessing that are forfeited because of sin, and we see that in Reuben and Simeon and Levi. Yes, they're blessed. Yes, they are granted and guaranteed an eternal destiny. In the legacy of God, and yet still, the actions that they took, the free choices that they made they have consequences. The tribe of Simeon, centuries later uh, will kind of disappear from from ever being talked about in the Bible when uh, when is, the nation of Israel you know, takes over the promised land. They become a monarchy. Then there's a civil war and there's a northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah. And then Assyria comes and takes over the northern kingdom. And then you kind of never hear about Simeon ever again. They get scattered. Levi never actually gets any land. The, the tribe of Levi gets turned into the priesthood and they get divided into all the different tribes because there need to be priests in all the different tribes. And so they too get divided. So everything that that Israel is saying here to his sons comes true over the course of history, over the centuries. Verse 8. And this is kind of the main one to talk about. It's Judah. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, or until tribute comes to the one it belongs to. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Now, this is Judah, the fourth son. Judah becomes the preeminent son, since Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are not. Now, what about Joseph? Joseph, we know, got the birthright, yes? He gets the material inheritance, yes? Yes. But Judah gets the blessing. It is through the line of Judah that God's plan carries out to maneuver toward the promised seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the king that is to come who will fulfill every promise, namely Jesus. Psalm 78, verse 67 God rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah. That's not rejected, like sent them, you know, out of his, his uh, promise or anything like that. It, it's not that. It's just when it came to where am I going to go, where, how am I going to send the Savior? It will not be through the line of Joseph. He got the, the birthright. And it won't be through Ephraim or Manasseh, even though they're, they're like firstborns. It'll be through Judah. Judah was the, was the chosen tribe, the, the royal tribe from which would come a king, a chief. And it first means D- King David, then it means King Jesus. And that's why his brothers shall praise him. That's why they'll bow down to him. The Messiah will come from him, the king who will rule forever and ever. Judah is called a lion's cub. What happens when a lion's cub matures? It is a lion. That's the true king. They're waiting for the lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah will have a scepter, a ruler staff, meaning he'll be in power. That tribe will be in power. It'll be the powerful tribe until tribute comes or until the one to whom tribute belongs comes. Until the one who really deserves all the glory, until he comes, Judah will be in charge up until that king arrives. And that's what happened. Judah was the most powerful tribe throughout the, nation of history, uh, the throughout the history of the nation, excuse me, until Jesus arrived, and then everything fell apart for, for everything else, for, for all the, the tribes. And then Jesus will return to fulfill the promise to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or the obedience of the nations. That's what it says. It's not just Israel. It's the whole world that will bow down to King Jesus. It says he'll bring wine and grapes and milk. There's this this imagery of great abundance and of great power and strength and might, military might even. Revelation 5, verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. That's Jesus. Jesus. And speaking to Jesus, it says, For you were slain, that's on the cross, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Daniel 7, verse 13. Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, verse 14, and to him, to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The prophetic word about the return of Jesus and how he will consummate history to then rule forever, that the land will be his as an everlasting possession. Jesus is the blessed, victorious king who will deliver God's people, and he will come from the line of Judah. Let's just sprint through the rest of the sons, because it's not that they don't matter, but they don't matter, okay? I mean, really, my comment on it, all of the stuff that's said about them is going to come true. Just take it at, at that. It's not hard to prove. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. L-O-R-D, capital letters, O Yahweh. Verse 19, raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. What? Verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. You'd have to include Manasseh and Ephraim from previous when he adopted them. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. So each one happens as it says. That's the the short answer. And Jacob, of course, has much to say about the future of Joseph. He's very artistic in it. And he elaborates on it because Joseph has the the preeminent position. But really, the, the ideas are a repetition of the things that the other brothers also receive. These are the blessings. It's a return to blessing. It's an escape from curse. It's a hope for a new beginning. To be set apart. To live by faith. And this is where we're going. And so... We get to verse twenty-eight through, uh, 29 through 33, excuse me, which is the end of Jacob. This is what it says. Then Jacob, or Israel, he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife, there they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were, brought from the, uh, were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Again, Israel asks to be buried, not in Egypt, but in the promised land. He says it to all his sons now, so it's not only Joseph that knows, but he says it to all of them. And it's a reminder, again, it's the reminder not just to to his sons, but to the reader, to the people of Israel, and to us, that the land is promised and the land is coming. They don't belong in Egypt. As a small side note, I love that he's buried there with Leah, his, his, his wife, one of his wives. Leah was faithful. She was neglected. She was not loved. Jacob loved Rachel. She got all the special treatment and stuff. And then, and then she was bringing household gods from from her family in in and stuff. But Leah was always just faithful and true and completely overlooked and forgotten. But when it came to it, when it came to the place of honor, Jacob had Leah buried there in the grave with his fathers, in the family of faith. And he says, I want to be buried there with Leah. Chapter 50, verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the, uh, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying... If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, my father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen in Egypt. And there went up with with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company." When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim, which means uh, Egypt mourns. It's beyond the Jordan, verse 12. Thus, His sons did for him as he commanded them, and his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Why so much detail and attention to the death and burial of Jacob? It's because the author is hammering in the family's faith in the promise of the land. They obey Jacob, they carry his body, they bury him there, that's where they belong. You have to understand that for the original audience who is right now leaving Egypt after 400 years of slavery, they are on their way to the promised land. And when they ask, how did we all come about? Where did this all come from? What is the beginning of God's people? Moses, as he writes this stuff down by the inspiration of God, is saying, it all began with Abraham, who was promised this land that we are now going to. Abraham is there. Jacob is there. That's where we belong. There are two big lessons then to walk away with. Chapter 50, verse 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him because they tried to kill him and they sold him as a slave. They did all sorts of stuff. It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph. They didn't talk to him. They sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Uh, Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him through this message. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your slaves. We are your servants. Naturally, now that dad is dead, the brothers are freaking out. right? They're like, Okay, dad's not around anymore, and so I think Joseph is going to take revenge. And so they're begging for their lives, and they're even saying, Dad said before he died, please forgive us all. And it It gives Joseph this moment where he starts weeping. He's like, is that what you think of me? You think I'm going to be that petty and spiteful? You think I'm going to be bitter? Like I don't see the hand of God working in my life to bring about something incredible despite the wickedness. And yet he gets to respond, which is the author's themes in the book of Genesis. Verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not fear. For am I... Two big lessons, two big themes. Theme number one. What you meant for evil, Ra, God meant for good, Tov. What you meant for Ra, God meant for Tov. That is the sovereignty of God operating. Among people, we make our choices. We, we freely maneuver about and decide how we want to live. And we, we choose evil. That's what we constantly choose. Consistently. Persistently. We choose evil. We go our own way. We stray away from the way of God. We decide for ourselves. We mean evil, harm, bad. We mean Ra. That's our intentions. And yet, still in there, despite the evil and wickedness of man, God is sovereign. He's not thwarted, He's not foiled, He's not outdone. He is always in control, and His will is always accomplished. What you meant for Ra, God meant for Tov. And He is working all things in the sinful world and broken world. He is working all things for the good of those who love him of those who trust in him theme number two am i in the place of god are we in the place of god we are not we are not in the place of god do you know how this book began God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He made this nice garden, created man and woman. He said, be fruitful, multiply. Now, you've got one job. Don't eat from this tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that. Everything else you could do, enjoy everything else. Have a great time. Be stewards of the land. Do it. Just stay away from this tree. And then there's walking around, and then the serpent speaks to, uh, to them, and, and, uh, and he says, don't you think this tree looks good, though? And and the reason why God doesn't want you to have it is because if you take of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll be like Him. Your eyes will be open. You now will be able to decide what's good and what's bad, what's tov, and what's ra. You can be like God. You can be in the place of God. And now as the author wraps this thing up and lands this thing back at the people of faith, the question is brought, am I in the place of God? And it's rhetorical. The answer is clear. No, I am not. For if I try to discern evil and good for myself, if I decide, then what happens is the world breaks. Cain kills Abel. Wickedness breaks out such that the world needs to be flooded. Violence is everywhere. Deception everywhere. Instead of be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, the men get together and say, let's build a monument to our own glory. Let's make a tower that challenges the heavens and says, we are great. We are where greatness is. And God looks at that and he has to confuse their languages and scatter them. Because it says, "What is this? This is not tove. This is not good." That is what people do. For the rest of Genesis, you just see people choose violence, wickedness, deceitfulness, self-righteousness, false religion. instead of spreading the image of God's glory, they cloister up and make monuments to themselves. Romans 1 verse 21, for although mankind knew God, human beings did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We say God didn't create the world the way he said he did. He wrote it down, and we go, no, that's not how he did it. And he goes, I created man out of dirt. I made him out, and I breathed life into him. We go, no, no, that's not how he did it. We came from other mortal men. We came from birds and animals, creeping things. And God says, I wrote this down for you. Trust me. And we go, no, that can't be right. Our, our, our knowledge is so good, we know more than God. We as people decided to be like God, to replace holy creator God, decide for ourselves what's good and evil. The design of man and woman is obvious, and we go, no, 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 no. I know what's good. I know what goodness is. I know what justice is. I know what love is. I know what truth is. And society says, that's what we know. We've, We've discovered the secrets because of all of our studying, We figured it out. Goodness, justice, love, truth—we figured it out. We have the answers. And Christians even think, "Oh, well, we need we need that stuff to to fix our understanding of the Bible. The Bible is it's broken. We need to fix that." And yet, God's saying, "You need to fix the world. The world has gone astray." Romans. 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. No one does good. It harkens right back even to the Hebrew language. No one does tov. Romans 12 verse 2, the call for God's people then is to wash out that instinct to listen to the world and to follow after him. Romans 12 verse 2, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. Not what the will of man, the will of culture, the will of society, the will of the world. What is the will of God? Because that is what is good and acceptable and perfect. That, the will of God, that is tov. When you say, I tried to do this myself. I screwed up. I got it wrong. Only God is good. Only God determines good. When you say that, that's the beginning of your faith. And then you say, only God knows what's good. And I screwed up. I sinned. I deserve death. Surely I will die. I want to follow God. But who will pay for my sins? That's when you find out God said, I promised someone who would do that who would crush the head of the serpent. I promised someone who would pay the penalty for your sins so that your waywardness, your wickedness, your violence, your dishonesty, your pride, your self-righteousness, your false religion would be paid for. And now you can pivot and adjust. You can repent and then trust God, have faith, trust in God instead of yourself. And you will be renewed in your mind and you'll know what is Tov. Because what God says is Tov, is Tov. And so we get to the end of Joseph, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel, his brothers, Swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Does he belong in Egypt? No. His faith is displayed by him imitating the words even of his father. He says, I don't belong here. I belong in the promised land. Why then is he put in a coffin in Egypt? Because the promise is not yet fulfilled. There's still work yet to be done. His final words give the clearest expression of the kind of hope taught in Genesis. Right now, Joseph is the most powerful man next to Pharaoh in the most powerful force in the world, the empire of Egypt. And he says, this is not where blessing is. Where God leads, that's where we belong. And so ends the book of Genesis. We conclude it all. And we're left with this thought to answer the big question of how it all came about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made man in his image, male and female. He created them, and it was good. But man and woman sinned against God, deciding for themselves to discern for themselves what is good. They and all creation were cursed with pain and frustration and certain death. And yet God, despite their wickedness, promised a seed of the woman who would come and crush sin and evil. And he called to himself a people to be set apart from the world who instead of discerning for themselves good and evil would trust in him, would live by trust, live by By faith. It began with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and then the people of Israel. For those who trust him, God promised a Savior, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman, of the line of Judah, to pay the penalty for their sin and to be their king. He would be strong and mighty he would lead the nations, he would bless the world, he would save our souls, and he would secure forever a land for him and his people as an everlasting possession. His name is Jesus, and the book of Genesis propels us to faith in God, ultimately to faith in him. This is the beginning of God's people. If you believe it, say amen. Let's pray. Father, may we trust you. May we trust you. May we trust in you. May we place our faith in Jesus to pay for our sins and to lead us to glory. Thank you, God, that you don't have us wallow in our unrighteousness. No one is righteous. No one is good. Not even one. But you give us an opportunity to repent and be renewed in our minds. As we trust in the one solution you promise, the offspring of Abraham, the seed of the woman, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of kings, Jesus, our Savior. And we await for him to come and fulfill the promise to the people of Israel, and by extension to all those who follow in the tradition of faith, who are grafted in to Abraham's descendants to enjoy the blessing of the land and of your glory and of spreading your glory to the whole world and to do that as an everlasting possession forever and ever with you. Ground us in the faith, in trust in you, ground us in the Savior who will fulfill it all. We pray all this for Christ's glory in his name. Amen.